turn off my microphone. Well, good evening, guys. Glad you're here tonight. We are continuing our study through the book of Joshua. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Stephen's up. He'll love to bring one so you can follow along with us. We got through about for, for the first 14 verses of chapter 6 last time together, but let's go ahead and start over with chapter 6. We'll kind of do the first part a little bit quickly, and then we'll get into... We should be able to make it through chapter 8 tonight. Um, a lot of big chunks of, of story being told, and so... It should be pretty cool tonight. I'm excited for it. So Joshua chapter 6 this evening. Let me grab me some water. Anybody want some water? I got some. I think it was the other Sunday. It was really, really hot on Sunday morning in here because the heaters are all up and and it was really dry. And I remember taking a drink of water as I was teaching. And I felt really bad because I think part of you guys, you're going, man, that water looks really, really good. <laughs> so I kind of felt guilty. but so, All right, let's pray as we get into God's word this evening. Father, thank you for this time tonight. Thank you for your word, how powerful it is to change our lives. Lord, how powerful it is. As you give us instruction, Lord, when we obey and when we do, we see great victory. Lord, and when we don't, Lord, we see defeat. And, uh, Lord, I know that's what we're going to be looking at tonight, Lord, and just how powerful your word is and, and what you say is true and what you mean is, is what you mean. And so, Lord, help us as we learn these lessons tonight, Lord, to apply these truths to our lives, Lord, as we glorify you in everything that we do. So bless our time together, Lord, we pray. Bless the kids downstairs as they're being taught your word as well. And we give you all the glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, starting verse 1 of chapter 6, we read up to verse 7. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once, then you shall do six days, or this you shall do six days, and the seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. Then Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed and march around the city and let him who is armed advance before the Ark of the Lord. So here is Joshua telling the people how they're going to conquer Jericho. Not by military might, not by an attack of the army, but rather in a way that only the Lord would receive credit for, a supernatural way. I mean, who ever heard of walls falling down just by marching around and shouting? But in God's plan, this is how God wanted to show his strength. And all the people had to do was listen and obey. Now, I understand how Joshua would say, okay, Lord, we will do as you say. Because Joshua is hearing directly from the Lord. But now Joshua has got to go back to the people and share with them what he heard from the Lord and hopes that they would understand that this was from the Lord and speaking not some lame brain idea that, that Joshua just came up with. That in other words, that they would follow his leading as he heard from the Lord. 
Now you recall back in chapter 1, the people said, hey, we will follow you as, like we followed Moses as long as you follow the Lord. And so now is the chance to do just that. Now I shared this last time together, but can you imagine being in the headquarters as Joshua gathers the leaders together and says, this is our game plan. And all the while they're thinking, okay, how are we going to attack? We'll attack at night or we'll, we'll, we'll attack this way or that way. And Joshua says, here's the plan. You're going to circle the city and not say a word for six days. Okay, then we're going to attack. No, on the seventh day, you're going to circle it seven times. Okay, then we're going to attack. No, no. Then you make a whole lot of noise and the walls are going to come crumbling down. Really? And you can almost picture the leaders going, really? Who's got another plan? But, but they didn't say that. They took that step of faith, trusted that their leader, Joshua, was listening to the Lord. And they said, we're going to move ahead with you. We're going to follow with what you say. We're going to do what you say. Now look at verses 8 through 14. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priest who blew the trumpets and the rear guard came after the ark while the priest continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, Shout. Then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord circle the city, going around at once. Then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. Then seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with their trumpets. I mean, they had to be in pretty good shape. I mean, I'd be... <laughs> And the armed man went before them, but the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did six days. So now that they're, they're obeying the Lord, they're, they're marching around the city for six days. Now understand, this would also give them plenty of opportunity to examine the 30 foot high, 15 foot thick walls there. This would give them plenty of opportunities to go, this ain't gonna happen. How's it? What's, what's gonna? These walls are too thick. There's no way this is gonna happen. But they kept marching. They were, they continued to be obedient. They kept trusting because they knew that they could do nothing about it. It was all up to the Lord. It was all the Lord's plan. I like what John Corson says in his commentary about this. He says, right now there might be a huge wall between you and a family member, a neighbor, or a fellow believer. God will have you go around it again and again until you finally say, I can't manipulate the situation. I can't solve the problem. I can't do a thing about this. Lord, only you can solve this. He goes on. And when at last you come to this realization, I promise you that in due season, he will do something earth shattering. Oh, it might take six months or even six years, but there will come a time when you'll say, it was the Lord who brought that wall down. It wasn't my cleverness or my ingenuity because as I went in circles day after week after month, it just got thicker and higher. I like that. You know, just trusting in the Lord. The Lord is going to do the work. The Lord is going to bring this about. Even though it looks impossible, God's going to do it. Now look at verse 15 and 16. It came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner on that day, only they marched around the city seven times, and the seventh time it happened. When the priest blew the trumpets, that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now, I mean, it was time to shout. 
that they've been completely quiet for the, the long six days. Not a sound except the trumpets. But now the seventh day, it's time to shout. And I, and I wonder what kind of shouting it was. Was it, ah! you know, just, just shouting? I, I don't think so. I, I think it was, I mean, shout for the Lord has given you victory. I think it was, praise the Lord, victory is ours. You, you know, the, the Lord has given us the city. You know, you go to football games or baseball games and we think nothing about shouting for your favorite team. You know, go Patriots, yeah, you know, or go Eagles, depends what who you work for, you know, in two weeks. But, but I think some of us even have, they have such a hard time even, even singing worship songs on Sunday morning. Oh yeah, I don't know if I want to sing or not. I don't know if I like worship. But the scripture's full of, of encouraging words of, of shouting to the Lord even. Psalm 98, verse 4 through 6. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in song. Rejoice and sing praises. Sing to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of a psalm, with trumpets and the sound of a horn. Shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. I think it'd be cool to have a trumpet on our worship team. Wouldn't, wouldn't you, Lord? That'd be, be, that'd be kind of hard to get in. It would be kind of cool. But they, it's just talking about praising the Lord for what He's done and, and shouting for, for, to the Lord for, for what He's going to do. That's what's going on here. People are instructed it's time to shout to the Lord. Now look at verses 17 to 25. He reminds them, don't forget, he says, verse 17, Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord's destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet. And the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. But Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all that she has, as you swore to her. And the young man who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So walls come down. Joshua says, now hold on. Remember Rahab. Remember, you know, her family. They've been protected with the promise. And you remember, she hid the spies. She, she helped them escape. But more than that, she believed God. She believed that Israel served the one true God. She feared the Lord as we looked at when we looked at her story. And as a result, her and all her household would be saved. Verse 23 says, Rahab, her father and her mother and her brothers were saved. You know, I think of, of Paul and Silas. Remember in Acts chapter 16 in there, they were arrested, they're in prison and they're singing praises to the Lord and, and suddenly this earthquake comes and all the, the you know, the, the, the bars are all open and the, the prisoners can, can, can run away and, and the prison guard is just freaking out and he's ready to take his own life and Paul says, no, 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 you know, you, you don't do it, we're all still here and, and Paul shares the gospel with them and, and it says there that the jailer and all his household were saved. 
My, my point is that is that the household had to believe as well. When the spies came in and told Rahab, hey, you know what, we'll save you, but all your family has to be in your house. Rahab had to go and tell her father and her mother and her brothers, listen, if you want to be saved, you got to come into the house. The jailer, I mean, if they want to be saved, you got to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's not just natural. You know, if, if, if you know, the, the jailer got saved or if Rahab got saved, it doesn't mean everybody else is saved in the family. Everybody's responsible for their own faith, for their own salvation. But also I want you to take note of verse 18, and, and we're going to get back to verse 18 when we get into chapter 7. The Lord said, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things. Then look at verse 19. It says, when you, when you take Jericho, it says, but all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. Now, why is this important? Well, we're seeing a principle here. See, God wants, you know, the first and the best from us in every area of our life. God is looking for that. Not necessarily because he wants it for his own pleasure, but yet it shows him in all of our lives just, just how truly he is the Lord of every aspect of our lives. It causes unselfishness in our hearts. See, as they moved into the promised land, this is the very first city they were to conquer. The first things they were to do were, were to, to receive from it were to be devoted to the Lord, given to the Lord. And it's the same principle is described for us in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. We know that the first fruits of our labor belongs to God. It's that dedication under God as we recognize that He is in fact our provision in the first place. Everything that we have belongs to Him. Everything. And so we are only giving back to God a small portion of what He has already given to us. But here God wants the first fruits. You know, when we give of our tithes and our offerings as an act of worship, we're giving our first fruits. We're saying, here Lord, before I pay any bill, before I go out, to any restaurant for dinner, you know, before I pay, you know, buy any groceries, I'm honoring you with a portion of what you blessed me with. I wouldn't have this job if it wasn't for you. I wouldn't have, have you know, the, the, these funds come in if it wasn't for you. I wouldn't have it. So, Lord, I'm going to honor you by giving you the, the first fruits. Now, go back and look at verse 21. Because this is a really difficult verse as well. Verse 21 says, and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. I mean, the people and animals are killed. The cities should be burned. And on top of that, God is ordering the death of women and children. And people say, well, how could a God of love order the death of women and children? Listen, God is a God of love. And He is a God of, of mercy, but He's also a God of justice and a God of judgment. And God's judgments are always right and true. They're always righteous and true. Listen, many people, including women and children, were killed during the flood in Genesis chapter 7. That's because God saw that mankind's wickedness was great, that every intent of their thought was continually evil. Many people, women, men, women, and, and children, will be killed when He pours out His judgment on the earth during the Great Tribulation period. Why? Because he will see that mankind refuses to repent of his wickedness and they'll be worshiping the, the demons and the beasts and, and the devil. Listen, there is a limit to, to mercy. A time when sin reaches its full measure. God endured the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah for a long, long time before saying to Abraham in Genesis 18, 20, 21, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave. 
He says, I'm going to go down. I'm going to check it out. And we're going to judge them. God could have, could have also judged the Amorites way back in, in Genesis chapter 15, but he told Abraham that his descendants would be in Egypt for a long, long time. Then in Genesis 15, 16, it says, Then in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. The Amorites were given another 400 years to repent before they were judged in Joshua 10. Listen, God will be merciful, but not to the destruction of justice. And of course, God is a God of grace, giving grace to those with faith. Remember again that, that everyone in Jericho was killed, except Rahab and her family. They, they, uh, they had the mercy of God. So the inhabitants of the land of Canaan had filled up with the measure of their sin. That's why God gave the commandment to utterly destroy. Now you may say, well, why didn't God just let, you know, wait until the wicked had died natural deaths and then just judge them eternally? But here's the problem with that. God was about to bring his children into the land. Now, if you were moving into a new house, would you bring your kids into a house that's infested with rattlesnakes? I don't think so, you know. Would you buy a rabbit dog for, for a pet, you know, for your kids? I don't think so. Would you leave your child home with a criminal, a pornographer, a rapist? Of course not. That's why the command was given way back in Deuteronomy 20, verse 17 and 18. 18 it says, you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations, which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. He's protecting them. If they left these, these blasphemous sinful people among the Israelites, it would mean certain death for God's children. Physical and spiritual. So as sad as it is, judgment had to go forth. Now, after this great victory, Joshua pronounces a curse. Look at verse 26. Then Joshua charged them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the country. What, what, what it's saying here is that Joshua is pronouncing a curse on any man who would attempt to rebuild Jericho in the way that it was before. If they, he says if they do, then his oldest and his youngest are going to die. Guess what? More than 800 years later, someone tried to rebuild Jericho in all its idolatry. And just like Joshua said, the oldest and the youngest both died. In 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 34, Ahab Became king, wicked king, you know, and he married, you know, Mrs. Wickedness, Jezebel, and, and the two of them ordered the rebuilding of this idolatrous altars in Jericho. And listen to this, we're told in 1 Kings 16.34, that in his days, Hael the Bethelite built Jericho. He laid his foundations with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Just as Joshua predicted. Listen, when there is a curse in the Word of God, we do well to pay attention to it. Conversely, when there is a blessing in the Word of God, we do well to walk in it. And when God gives us a clear instruction of what to do, we're meant to follow it to a T. Thus the problem as we get into chapter 7. See, chapter 7 
begins with a small three little letter word that changes this whole victory. Except into this time, the children of Israel, man, they're on a spiritual roll. They're on a spiritual high. They've been experiencing awesome power. It began at, at Moses' death, Joshua taking over. It was a new time with the Lord as they were about to enter into the promised land. It started with a miracle. You know, there was, there was a, the parting of the Jordan River. They know that God is with them. He's been so faithful thus far. We've seen them march now around the, the walls of Jericho. And we saw the power of God to bring the walls down using ordinary people, faithful ordinary people to do the extraordinary. They believed God. God was glorified. Great was his victory. Things are going good. They're on a roll once again. Until chapter 7. There's three little words. But. But. Look at verse 1. But the children of Israel committed a trespass uh, regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Oh, snap. What happened? Something was done wrong. And the seriousness of what was done wrong affected the entire group of Israelites. What was done wrong? Remember chapter 6, I told you to mark it, verse 18. Abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things. Specific instruction given to the Israelites not to take any of the accursed things uh, at all. But what did Achan do? He kept some of the accursed things for himself. What's interesting when it comes to word studies, the, the name Achan means troubler, and the city that they're about to move in, uh, into is Ai, which means heap. And because of what Achan did, the Israelites will find themselves in a heap of trouble. That's what it says. I didn't make it up, you know. Now soon we're going to see Achan's going to have an Achan back, and Achan everywhere else. I did make that up. Um, but <laughs> look at the trouble they face. Look at verse 2 now because of it. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to them, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are just are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them down before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. You know, many scholars, many commentaries, commentators draw attention to Achan because we'll see it's his sin and it affected Israel, which is true. But I want to point out something here that Israel finds themselves beginning to move into sin as well. Because they came in before they attacked Ai with an attitude of self-confidence rather than Christ confidence. Oh, we, we only need a few thousand men to take these guys, you know. It's not going to be a big deal. Notice they didn't even seek the Lord first. They didn't go, Lord, how should we attack her? What should we do? They just say, hey, we've got this covered. You know, there are times when, when we may feel the same way. Lord, I got this covered. No, no, don't worry about it. We need to be careful at that point. Because many times we're just getting ourselves into in a, in a bigger predicament. We're setting ourselves up for a great fall. Israel had experienced a great victory at Jericho. Hey, look at what we did. We shouted and the walls came down. No doubt feeling pretty proud of themselves. Pretty together. 
And so it's with this kind of pride they move into AI, you know, just a smaller territory. Hey, you know, we took Jericho, no problem, you know. It's going to be a pushover. Just don't send all the troops in. Just, just we can handle this on our own. Well, you know, whenever we feel in any capacity that because of a victory yesterday, that we can, can, can handle today's victory, be very careful because we're setting ourselves up for a great fall. Alan Redpath puts it this way. He says, apart from the grace of God, And the blood of Jesus, even the smallest temptation will prove to be too powerful for each and every one of us. And that's true. The day that you think you can stand, that you're standing strong, be careful because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, what happens in our text next is interesting because the attitude that Joshua finds himself coming to God with is something that we need to note. Look at verse 6. The 36 men died, you know, they came back, they lost this battle. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads, a sign of mourning. And, and Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Oh Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our, our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? I mean, look at Joshua's attitude concerning this disaster. We know the reason why it happened. But Joshua didn't know. We know it's because of Achan's sin. Joshua doesn't know and he's confused. And he's concerned about everything. Why are we here? You know, this is going to happen. But then he, he's most concerned with God's name, God's reputation. It's somehow going to be stained. And what will you do for your great name? He had this, this fear of just displeasing the Lord. A fear that we all should have as Christians. And, uh, you know, that just not wanting to feed the Lord. Not, not that we're afraid that God's going to strike us dead. You know, if you sneeze funny or something. But the fear that I have in my heart that I might do something that would cause his name or his reputation to be seen as some, something not found in the pages of Scripture from people who love him. I'm afraid that I'll do something stupid that will stain the name of Jesus. So, so we find ourselves walking in fear, in, in the fear of God, you know, that somehow he would be slandered because of my foolish behavior. That's the way it needs to be. Joshua, or Job 28, 28 says, Behold the fear of the Lord that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. You fear the Lord. Depart from evil. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. See, this whole wholesome fear of displeasing God and, 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 and bringing a bad name to the Lord was, was Joshua's biggest concern. So look at verse 10. So, Lord, so the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? I think that's just funny. Because he hasn't got a clue what's going on, but God does. Goes on. Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant which I have commanded them, for they have even taken some of the accursed things, and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turn their backs before their enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you any more, unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Get up, sanctify the people, and say, Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow. Because thus says the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed things from among you. You know, you can't hide your sin from God. 
Here, the Lord says clearly what, what, what's done and, and tells Joshua uh, to deal with it. Uh, I love it. He says, get, get up. Get your face off the ground. Let me tell you what's going on. Let me tell you what's, what's really happening. You got a, a thief in the camp. And tomorrow morning, you're going to find out just who it is. So verse 14, Joshua says to the people, In the morning, therefore you shall be brought according to your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come by households, and the household which the Lord takes shall come by man by man. Then it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. Do you think Achan slept that night? I thought I just thought about that right now. I mean, here Joshua is just saying, "What's going to happen in the morning?" Had to hear it, uh, you know. And, and we just before he said, "Listen, guys," you know, he's saying, "You guys have an opportunity to repent, because tomorrow there's going to come a time when judgment's going to come. I'm going to call you one by one from each tribe, and until we find out who took these things." Listen, God always gives us that opportunity to repent. You know, it's when we harbor our heights in that we set ourselves up for destruction. Two important principles we see here, both that really we need to understand this evening. Number one, when one person sins, it affects the whole body of Christ. It affects the whole body. We know that. And number two, your sin will find you out. You, you can't hide sin. Especially, we, we can't think that you can hide sin from God because God sees our hearts. He sees the sin that, that you may be holding on to. Now, God gives us every opportunity to repent. And we see this here in this portion of Scripture. God is, is, is just in judgment by giving us those opportunities. But what happens with Achan? Even though he had the opportunity, he doesn't do it. Well, aware of what's going on, he doesn't repent. Now look at verses 16 through 26. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel by the tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the clan of Judah, and he took the family of the Zarhites, and he brought the family of the Zarhites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. Then he brought this household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Now Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and make confession to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. And there they are, hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver under it. And they took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua and to all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garments, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them to the valley of Achor. Then Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Then they raised over him a great heap of stones, still there is to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of the place has been called the Valley of Acre to this day. Literally, the valley of disaster to this day. So much application in this small chapter of Joshua. I mean, look at the path that he took. Look back to verse 21. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them 
and took them, and there they are hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with silver under the four steps, the progress of Achan's tent. I saw, I coveted, I took, and I hid. Man, that's, that's, that's always a step of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's always that same step. I saw, I wanted it, so I took it, then I tried to hide it. It's almost humorous that a person who tries to hide his sin is named Achan because, you know, that's how we feel when we try to hide our sin. You know, you're Achan's sight. I think of David. Remember when David tried to hide his sin from Bathsheba? Uh, it says in Psalm 32, verse 3 and 4, When I kept my silent, my bones grew, grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the draught of summer. It's just that, that aching when you're in sin. Notice that it's the same path that Eve went on. She saw that it was good food. She saw it was good for the eye, pleasant to the eye. She coveted it. She took them. She ate. She took it. Then she hid in the garden. She hid. Listen, we, when we hide sin, we're not hiding it from God. There's really nothing you can hide from God. He sees everything. Where can I go from His presence? Where can I flee from Your presence? If I send to heaven, You're there. If I, I go to, 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 the, to, to make my bed in hell, behold, You're there, Psalm 139 says. So it's really foolishness for us to try to hide. Hold on a second. I just clicked the button on my notes. It's foolishness to try and hide my notes as I'm teaching. It's foolishness to try and hide our sins from God. Because, you know, God sees it all. Maybe there's some secret sin going on in your life that you've been hiding. The question is why? Why keep hiding it? Confess it and turn from it. Turn back to the Lord. He sees what you're doing anyway. can't hide it from Him. It doesn't only affect you. It affects the church, the body of believers here at Calvary Chapel. It brings destruction in your life. So why hold on to it? We talked about this on Sunday. It begins in the, in the mind. You know, we need to guard our minds from temptation. Now the obvious answer why we hide things is because we like it. The Bible does say in Hebrews 11 that sin is pleasurable for a season. But that's no reason to continue on in it, knowing that it's going to end in destruction simply because you like it. That's like saying, oh, I love the thrill of going out on a thin branch hanging over a cliff a thousand feet in the air. It's exciting. It's exhilarating. Yeah, but that branch is going to break eventually. It's stupid. See, when you understand that sin leads to destruction, then you need to cast it before the Lord. Ask for forgiveness and turn from it. Hear the warning. Give up this and don't do it any longer. I mean, this is a brutal story. Just before they stone Achan to death, you just want to see him, you know, before they bring him out, before he's caught. You want to see him come voluntarily, you know, and say, I would have, I did this. But he doesn't. But understand, this is an Old Testament example of a New Testament principle. Romans you know, 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Now we know for the unbeliever, you know, they could be dying physically, having rebelled against Christ all their life, and they continue to live in sin that way. They're going to experience the, the second death, not only the first death here on earth, but they'll experience you know, the total separation from God for all eternity. But to the Christian who's, who's playing with sin and dabbling in sin and trying to hide that sin, you, you're still going to experience some kind of death. And it's not fun. A death of a relationship, a, a death of, of separation of fellowship. No longer experiencing the blessings of God. Now you may say, well, I just wish this sin would go away. I wish it would just go away. But, but let me tell you, it's not going to go away. And it, it won't until you begin to hate the things that God hates. Because it's a lack of hatred towards whatever sin it may be that keeps that person going back towards it. 
And as you continue in it, you don't see the damage that it does until it's too late. We need to hate sin like God hates sin. And we need to turn from it. Repent and go in the right direction. Make no provisions for the flesh. Now, maybe it's a, a program on TV that you're watching and you know it's not good. And you know it's, it's giving you bad thoughts and it's trash and it's tearing you down. Listen, turn it off. Maybe it's a sin that, that, that no one knows about. Maybe, you know, maybe you're not reading your Bible, not praying, not being a good example of Christ at work. It could be as simple as a, a bad attitude all the time because you don't feel like yielding your heart to the Lord. Maybe it's a sin of pride. Coming in and always looking down on people. Listen, it's, it's because of that sin that you're holding on to that you can't really have the right attitude with God. And you can come into a, a church setting and, and kind of have a, a judgmental attitude. Why? Because you're kind of justifying your own sin. Oh, look at those people over there, man. They're not any good. And that person over there. Because in your heart, you know, and you go, man, I, I, I know I'm in sin. I just, you know, I, I got to make myself feel better. But to the person that, who comes in and has repented, comes in with an attitude of readiness, ready to receive, man, they're ready to worship the Lord. But if you come in and there's an unrepentant sin, and you can come in with a stinky attitude, and it begins to affect other people, and, and it begins to rub off, and all it takes is one person to come in with a, a stinky kind of attitude, and it affects the whole church. But, that three-letter word again, you come in with a good attitude, a repentant heart, you deal with the sin, you know, then you're going to be looking for opportunities to be used by God. You're going to be looking to serve other people and, and you're here to, to praise the Lord. Not looking with a judgmental attitude of what other people are doing. Just, just here to praise the Lord. See, it has, has a reverse effect in a positive way. Israel was experiencing victory. The parting of the Red Sea, the parting of the Jordan River, the walls falling down in Jericho. But all it took was one person to mess the whole thing up. A lot of times, church split starts with just one person. One person sees, sees things a little bit differently and they get together with another person and, hey, do you agree with what's happening over there? Are you really happy there? Do you know what's going on? Did you know happened? And before you know it, you know, there it is. There's division. Israel took part in this attitude of pride, feeling that they could be confident enough to walk without God. Achan coveted the things that became sin. And, 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 and the, result, the whole body suffered. Thirty-six men died. Hopefully, lesson learned. Because we see as we move on that, that God was going to move in a powerful way. Now we come to, to chapter 8. He wants the sin of Israel is dealt with. Now the Lord is ready to lead his people into further triumphs and further victory. Yeah, sin is done. We dealt with that. Out of the camp. Now I'm going to bless you. And, and I like this. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise, go up to Ai, See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its kings as you did to Jericho and its kings. Only its spoil and its cattle you shall take as booty for yourselves. Lay an ambush for the city behind it. I love that after the defeat comes the words of encouragement once again. Do not be afraid nor dismayed. And now this is the second time around. He says, as for, as for, the, as for the loot... As for the, for the booty, he says here, you guys take that for yourself. And, and, and he, he blesses them. Two Israel lost the battle, but, the, but they didn't have to stay on the losing side. They lost that first round, but God was with them on the second round. Now, it wasn't like the Kansas City Chiefs who had to go home and wait another year to get a chance of victory. Here, the Lord is assuring Israel that now they have the victory as long as they obey him. This time God gives the orders. He said, you shall do to Ai and its kings as you did to Jericho and its kings, only its spoil and its ambush 
The spoil and cattle you shall take as booty for yourselves. Lay an ambush for the city behind it. See, we shouldn't live in our past failures. Always frustrated, always despondent. We put sin in its proper place, judge it, get right with God, and continue on trusting trusting Him. We'll be victorious. I mean, David reminds us over and over again, all throughout the Psalms, of God's mercy, how it endures forever. But again, it comes from being obedient to God. There can be no victory without obedience. The whole matter of victory in a Christian's life is God's doing. To live the victorious Christian life is God's undertaking in the same way as Israel conquered Canaan was God's undertaking. And just as true for them as for us, all things are working together for good. This means all. The judgments, the punishments, the trials, the testing, the defeats, everything that we as believers experience, God uses in our lives for good. Now, in our case, it's in order that we might be conformed to the image of God's Son. But, you see, when, when sin is confessed, when it's judged and forsaken, then God is able to work. And, and, all, and I found that, that once you deal with the sin in your life, again, God then begins to work in glorious ways, great ways. Again, I see that over and over again in David's life, in Peter's life. Peter denied the Lord three times, but when he came clean with God, man, he was a, a leader of, of the early disciples. John Mark forsook Paul and Silas, but later after he got right with God, Paul urged that Mark be brought along and used for a cause of Christ. See, failure in our past should teach us valuable lessons, but, but not put a stop to our ministry. We shouldn't let, let past failures paralyze us or our present future. We need to get right with God and go on. Joshua now has new orders. He's ready to obey, and we see God at work. Look at verses 3 now, down to verse 29. Big chunk here. So Joshua rose and all the people of war, to go up against Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them away by night. Far cry from 3,000 the first time. And he commanded them, saying, Behold, you shall, not, you shall lie in ambush against the city, behind the city. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you be ready. Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and it will come about when they come out against us at the first, that we shall flee before them. For they will come out after us till we have drawn them from the city, for they will say, They are fleeing before us as at the first. Therefore we will flee before them. Then you shall rise from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. That's brilliant. We're going to run. They're going to come chasing after us. And then you guys come out and get them. goes on to verse 8. And it will be when you have taken the city, that you shall set the city on fire, according to the commandment of the Lord you shall do. See, I have commanded you. Joshua therefore sent them out, and they went to lie in ambush and stayed between Bethel and Ai on the west side of Ai. But Joshua lodged that night among the people. Then Joshua rose up early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the people of war who were with him went up and drew near. And they came before the city and camped on the north side of Ai. Now a valley lay between them and Ai, so he took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. And when they had set the people, all the army that was on the north of the city and its rear guard on the west of the city, Joshua went that night into the midst of the valley. And that happened when the king of Ai saw it, that the men of the city hurried and rose early and went out against Israel to battle. He and all his people at an appointed place before the plain. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all of Israel made as, a, as if they were beaten before them and fled by the way of the wilderness. So all the people who were in Ai were called together to pursue them. Let's go get them. And they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. There was not a man left in Ai or Bethel who did not go after Israel. So they left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, 
Stretch out the spear that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the spear that was in his hand toward the city. So those in ambush arose quickly out of their place. They ran as soon as he said, stretched out his hand, and they entered the city and took it and hurried to set the city on fire. And when the men of Ai looked behind them, they saw and behold, the smoke of the city ascended to heaven. So they had no power to flee this way or that way. And the people who had fled to, to the wilderness turned back on the pursuers. Now when Joshua and all of Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that the smoke of the city ascended, they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. Then the others came out of the city against them. So they were caught in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And they struck them down so that they left none of them remain or escape. But the king of Ai, they took alive and brought him to Joshua. And it came to pass when Israel had made an end of slaying all the inhabitants of Ai in the field and the wilderness where they pursued them. And when they had all fallen by the edge of the sword until they were consumed, that all the Israelites returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. So it was that all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back his hand which, with which he had stretched out the spear until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Only the livestock... And the spoil of that city Israel took as booty for themselves, according to the word of the Lord, which he has commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai, made it a heap forever, a desolation to this day. And the king of Ai, he hanged on a tree until evening. And as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded that they should take his corpse down from the tree, cast it at the entrance of the gate of the city, and raise over it a great heap of stones that remains to this day. What a story. Joshua received different orders from the Lord to take Ai. He was to follow a different direction than what he did to bring down the walls of Jericho. Lord doesn't always do the same thing the same way. God never again told Israel to march around the wall seven times and yell as he did for Jericho. God had a different plan for Ai. God's character never changes, but he doesn't necessarily follow the same plan in everything that he does. You can't put God in a box. Okay, this is the way God did it before, so we're just going to go ahead of God because that's what God's going to do next. No, God, God does things differently. Now, I can't imagine what it was like for Israel to go back to Ai after their first defeat. I mean, it had to have been hard. So we're going to go back there, you know. And I think in the same way, we don't like to face our sins. We'd much rather not deal with them. But, but as we saw, it only brings destruction. They had to go back face-to-face, deal with what had happened before. If we want to have a victorious Christian life, we need to obediently follow the instructions from the Lord. How to resist sin that, that's found in His, you know, resist sin that we read that's found in His Word and deal with it with His power and with His authority. In other words, what God calls sin is sin. We need to deal with it. And then we can have great victory, just as Joshua did. And then they celebrate. Look at verse, final verses 30 through 35. Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel, Maribel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whose stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered, it, offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Then all Israel, with their elders and their officers and judges, stood on either side of the ark before the priests and the Levites, who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, the strangers, well as he who was born among them. Half of them were in the front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterwards he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had 
commanded what Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the woman, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. You know, it's almost like the old uh, Wild World of Sports theme, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. They had the defeat. Now, this was victory. And they're rejoicing just in what God has done. And they're worshiping the Lord. And they bring their burnt offerings. And, and, they, and they build the altar to the Lord. And, and it says everyone was there. Verse 35 tells us uh, the little ones and the women and even the strangers living among them. See, when you're in the Lord's will, when sin has been dealt with, it, it's a joy to be in fellowship with other believers. It's a joy to hear God's word being read. Am I right? I mean, if, if you're in sin and you read about some sin that you're in, you're, you're not liking reading what you're hearing. You're not hearing what you're reading. I, I mean, until you confess that, you go, yeah, you know, and there's a joy to be in there. Joshua understands. Man, we need to get the word out. We need to remind everyone what God's word says. And he wrote the word of God on the rocks for everyone, young and old, strangers to see as a warning. Follow God's word. Don't turn from the left. Don't turn from the right book, but this book will keep you from sin. I think Joshua really... Chapter 7, we saw the defeat because of sin, lack of faith. Chapter 8, we see the restoration to faith because they don't seek the Lord first and seek the Lord 